Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record a podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis, and normally I'm here with Carrie Ellaveld, but she is doing some holiday traveling well deserved i must say so today my i guess guest and co-host i guess it's simon <laughs> rosenberg he's the president of new democrat network and the n and uh and a bit of a twitter celebrity in the run-up and <laughs> aftermath of this election so we're going to be talking about the midterm election the results and why people like me and Simon and just a very few others saw what was going to happen and everybody else missed it. So it's a bit of a gloat session. It's going to be a lot of fun. Simon, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here, Marcos. So, Simon, you know, we, Carrie and I, for the last year, we were talking about how this was not going to be a typical <laughs> midterm. Mm. Typical midterm, of course, being that mm. it's a it's a referendum on the incumbent president. So that means that mm. the party in power in the White House generally loses seats in the House to the tune of about 30 seats. So usually it's a big, big, big loss. Yep. And we were saying early on that it was going to be different because Donald Trump didn't get off the stage. So it was hard right. to have a referendum on Joe Biden if Donald Trump was still running for president the entire time. And also we saw that the Dobbs decision on abortion we saw that coming and we knew that was going to have an impact. That was sort of the theory of the case. Right. Simon, what did you see like a year out? Did you, were you, yeah. did you see dynamics were going to be different or did that come closer to election time once we started getting more data? Yeah. Listen, I always thought the Republicans made an enormous strategic error in this last election that could cost them and make this a more normal, I mean, uh, an atypical midterm and make it a close competitive election, which is they ran towards a politics, MAGA, which had just been rejected by the American people in overwhelming numbers in two consecutive elections. Usually when you lose elections, you try something new. And instead, they ran right towards a politics that actually people had just voted against in two very high, term, uh, high turnout elections in a row. So that was an enormous risk. And the second thing that sort of got into my head a year ago when I wrote my first big piece in this, was that we saw in August and September and October, Joe Biden's approval rating came down about 10 points. But the congressional generic, that question of who are you going to vote for Congress, didn't move at all. Meaning that the decoupling that everybody began to talk about many months later between Biden's approval rating and how people intended to vote happened a year ago. And the explanation for that in my mind was that it was the thing we've been talking about, which is at the end of the day, you could be disappointed in Joe Biden, but not want to have anything to do with the Republicans. You'd already voted against them twice. And so the Republicans made this a close election by running towards the politics MAGA, which the country is just not that into. So Simon's Twitter handle is at Simon WDC, W yep. uh, Delta Charlie. And hopefully there's a Twitter <laughs> moving forward. But it was actually kind of fascinating because a lot of us, a lot of us were, were saying this, this is not, this is a very atypical election, but I don't think there's anybody as aggressively yeah. pushing back on the narrative the way Simon was on Twitter. And he was, he was accused by, by many derisively mockingly of, uh, of, um, 
trafficking hopium. Hopium. Yep. That was Nate Silver, actually. That was Nate yeah, Silver. Nate, <laughs> right. So he was. It was very derisive, and the idea being that he was he was uh, cherry picking data or information in order to make his side look better and create false sense of hope. Um, obviously, in the aftermath of the election, we realized that everybody else was dealing <laughs> in opium, and we were dealing in in reality. So you know, a lot of kudos because even. I mean, obviously, a lot of us were talking about it, but you were relentless. You were every single day, yeah. like morning thread, evening, afternoon thread, yep. evening thread, and you were just yep. hammering it. And it seemed like you were out on a limb. To anybody else looking out, like I agreed yeah. with you, right? Yeah. How did that feel to be that sort of lonely, other than a few, you know, scattered allies? But it was pretty lonely out there, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I had a basic take on this election, which is I thought we had a shot. And I was just going to leave it all on the playing field. I mean, it was really that simple. I mean, I just was not I was I made a decision in May that I was just going to do everything I possibly could within my powers to make sure that we had a good election, because the alternative, the Republicans seizing both control, both chambers in Washington was so um, difficult to comprehend. And so, you know, I yes, I upped my. Uh, level of intensity and engagement. Um, I Many reporters in town are aware that I would call them relentlessly challenging their interpretation of their stories or trying to get my story through. And the first wave that happened was over the summer, right, where I got we got people to back away from the red wave. The red wave sort of emerged as a storyline in the spring. Um, and then, you know, through the evidence that we had with the five house special elections. I know you've talked about this a lot on your show, the five house special elections, Kansas, the heightened voter reg numbers, the, you know, the, uh, all the candidate fundraising, wherever you looked, you saw Democrats are doing better than people expected. And Republicans are struggling a little bit. The national polls, if you were looking at the real polls, right, were, you know, pretty good for us. I mean, it wasn't cherry picking. It's just that it was, you know, you could see a path where we had a shot and so we were able to, many of us working together, were able to get the back that the media off the first red wave. Um, and, and it became sort of seen as, well, maybe this is going to be a competitive election. Um, and then somehow in the fall, there became this media story that somehow the intensity around post-Dobbs had dissipated, that women actually cared more about the eggs costing 30 cents more than their bodily autonomy, which was always the most insulting and ridiculous part of this whole election. And that, you know, women who actually were really comfortable and happy, you know, with losing their bodily autonomy and turning it over to the people that had taken it away. And, and so I think that the red wave, what's so amazing about the return of the red wave in the fall was the red wave was actually the opposite of what happened, right? It wasn't just a miss. It was the opposite. And, and I am convinced it was an effort by Republicans who just couldn't imagine that there was a popular uprising that had happened because of the ending of, of Roe, because they viewed abortion as such a morally you know, terrible thing. That, and, and so they couldn't accept it. So they worked very hard to create a different story and have a different storyline in the election. Well, that's fine. And maybe the media bought it, but the American people didn't. And you know, we had we had an election that I just want to say, you know, just so I don't run out of time, is that two things happened in this election. Well, three things, really, right? One is they were too extreme. People didn't like them in the last two elections. There was, you know, a whole lot of reasons to, to believe that they had not redeemed themselves and become a more traditional center-right party. 
But importantly, Joe Biden's been a good president, and the country is actually better today than when he came into office. I don't care about the polling. There was a general sense that, you know, these guys are a little crazy. These guys have done a decent job. You know, I'm just going to stay the course. Very few incumbents lost. And and this would not have happened if Joe Biden actually hadn't been a good president. And I think that's really important. And then the third thing that should be very encouraging, Marcos, to us is that in the battleground states where we ran real campaigns, right, highly funded campaigns, national media coming in, the unprecedented investment by the DNC in turnout and grassroots and field operations, right? We were able to out not only hold off losses, we were able to make gains in the battleground from 2020, meaning that as we head into 2024, we've demonstrated to Republicans that we can be in control of our own destiny in the most important states for the presidential election. That's one of the reasons why for them, if you listen to them, they believe they had a very bad election. There is no one on their side trying to put lipstick on this pig, right? They had a bad election. They know they've had three disappointing elections in a row. They know the way that we went, you know, one by five in Pennsylvania, five in Arizona, right? We're going to win in in Georgia, you know, next week. Is that they know the way we're winning Michigan by 10 points, right? This is bad for them. So this this wasn't just a good election for us. This was, in many ways, a really good election because because we got it so close in the House, we're going to be favored, I think, to take it back in 2024 if we win at the presidential level. So we could have a very, very good 2024. And using the line that I've been using for the last several months, I, we enter this next cycle, I'd rather be us than them. I mean, certainly that's the case that I feel today. That's, um, that's actually a really good outline. So I actually want to follow that, that one, two, three. So let's, let's go back to your one, which was, was, which yeah. was abortion. Um, I was particularly struck at how eager sort of the political media was was to go along with this idea that that the issue had no salience or, or it had ebbed. Right. And you look at who was saying those things. It was it was a Nate Silvers. Right. It was a bunch of white, straight men who they were bored. I, I mean, that's the only explanation that I had, that they were bored with the issue because they didn't care. It didn't affect them. Yeah. Therefore, they projected that on the rest of the country. Uh, do you see any other explanation why? Anybody would think when, when all the special elections, the Kansas uh, abortion um, ballot initiative, like everything pointed to a highly energized and angry uh, women yeah. and independent women, which yeah. ended up swinging towards us in, in key, key races. So I have a slightly more charitable, but not too more, too much more charitable way of, of, of uh, discussing this, which is. I think this was for a lot of men a new issue. I don't know how they feel. I don't know how they felt about it. They may not have actually really spent a lot of time because they lived in a in a, a time when they didn't really have to worry about it very much. Nobody had to really worry about it very much, right? And I think that for a lot of men, it was possible for them to be fooled um, by other people who were trying to fool them um, because they just didn't know. They, they weren't sure. They didn't, this is not something they'd been thinking about or studying for years. And so there was also, I think, a very strong bias towards the end to reverting back to this basic idea of the fundamentals, the typical midterm, you know, that, you know, things were, the red wave was going to come. And let's just talk about how the red wave returned. It, it happened. It happened in two ways. One is there was a poll in the New York Times by Nate. And by Cohen. the way, sorry, yeah. sorry. Just to make it clear, when when Simon's yeah. talking about the red, red wave returning, it's the narrative of yeah. the red wave because not, it started not, yeah, at the beginning of the year. Yeah. 
Then, yeah. then in the middle, like in the summer, there was a lot of pushback. The special elections really helped kind of dampen that down. Yeah. And then it, there was a resurgence of it probably in October, right? Late September, October. Yeah, so, this is what you so, want to talk about right now. Yeah, it, this is really important to recognize because this was where, this is the, and I've been doing this for 30 years. This is the biggest media failure, I think, that we've seen in politics. And we have to grapple with this, what happened. And so I think what happened was, you know, there this, I think by the end of September, mid-September, it was a close competitive election. There was sort of an openness that Democrats might actually do well. And there were a series of pieces saying, maybe this wasn't going to be such a bad election after all. And then Nate Cohn in the New York Times, who's arguably or one of the most respected analysts in the business, had a poll showing the race moving four points towards the Republicans. Um, you know, And that sort of triggered the, oh, here we go, the fundamentals are kicking in. But then the second piece of this, which we discussed last time I was on air with you, was this campaign by Republicans to game the polling averages. And there's no question that there was some group who spent a lot of money to produce more than 40 polls in seven states with 10 different pollsters that were three or four points more Republican uh, than the averages to push the averages down. So if you're just looking at, you know, you see Nate Cohn's poll, you see the generic moving a little bit because in part there's this flood of national Republican polls. And in the states, you see the state numbers shifting two, three points. If you're just not digging very deep, what you're seeing is everything's moving towards the Republicans. And so there, then that's when people started declaring the red wave, right? That's when it was the combination of, you know, a handful of national polls showing movement, right? And then, and, but what's important is that we challenged this at the time it was happening. I said, listen, the only way you can get to red wave is if you are looking at, if, if you're allowing these BS Republican polls to dictate your understanding. And let me give you an example. In Georgia, in the last few weeks, there were five independent media polls. In those, we were up an average of three points. In the five Republican polls, we were down by four and a half. It was an eight-point variance, right? And it was just clear what they were doing because it was the same pollsters. They had very similar numbers. And so there was a campaign to basically create the red wave. And so what was disappointing to me, and I went on Joy Reid two weeks before on MSNBC, two weeks before the election, and I called everybody out on this. And I said, look, this, there, people are being manipulated. And people who know better, national commentators, people we all see on TV, you know, people like Nate Silver, have an obligation to explain to their readers that there's a game going on here. There's an effort by the Republicans to work the refs and, and that we need to now go back just not to the averages, but just to the independent polls. Well, they didn't do that. And so we ended up, you know, having Chris Saliza in the final week saying the bottom is falling out for the Democratic Party. All this stuff. Meanwhile, in the last week, the congressional generic, the independent congressional generics had us actually up one. And when I wrote my final memo on the night before the election, I said, based on the independent polls today, here's what the Senate looks like. It looks like we're going to win in Arizona, Georgia and Pennsylvania. Nevada's too close to call. And it looks like Wisconsin and North Carolina and Ohio are going to go Republican. And that's exactly what happened. And it isn't that I was some genius. I just didn't allow my understanding of this to be polluted by what was obviously a Republican campaign to game the polling averages. And so the fail here wasn't in the in 2020. The fail was in the data. The fail in this election was in the analysis. And and that's actually in some ways more worrisome because it meant that very, very smart people 
who were, as you pointed out, I mean, I got 100 million Twitter views in, in over a five-week period, um, you know, from mid-October through mid-November. I mean, this stuff was in, I was throwing this stuff in everybody's face and, you know, they were rejecting it and settling on sort of the herd red wave, red wave, red wave, right? I mean, it looks like the red wave. And there were some Democrats contributing to that. I think Data for Progress yep. uh, helped produce a series of polls that helped show that there was a Democratic firm seeing similar things happening. And so, you know, I, I think that my big concern, having done this again for a long time, is that we need to see more humility from people who were really wrong and who, frankly, misled people, right? This wasn't just a miss. It was the opposite of what happened. And I am now convinced that I've thought about this. I've talked to a lot of people. I think that this weeks and weeks of red wave, the depression that people had, the frustration, the anger, could have easily cost us the House. We lost the House by 4,000 votes in five races. Um, you know, was this enough to cost us there? I spoke to somebody today, a young field organizer who worked in Nevada. She said they were all depressed in the final month. They all thought they were going to get killed. And, and so, and you know, Marcos, there's a difference between thinking you're going to get killed and thinking you're going to be in a competitive race. And, and so I don't know that we got everything out of all of our folks that we could have. And so this stuff was really meaningful. And the media needs to have a period of self-reflection. I mean, maybe I'm being naive. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not seeing yeah. that at all. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing that. Yeah. You know, it's no. interesting that that Nate Cohn poll, uh, and yeah, yeah. that um, that showed Republicans surging four points. That that never happened. That that kind never of happened. jump did not exist. And polls yeah. can have outliers. That's why you look at the aggregate of polling, or maybe you even look. You know, with civics, we have this. We have we poll yeah. every single day, and you could see yeah. that the generic ballot. Um, did not budge for the last yep. six months of the of the race, right? People's opinion don't change. Just think about it. What would it take for you, yeah. if you're listening to this, to change your mind about how you're going to vote? Why would you think other people are that malleable? They're not. It becomes a question of who's going to turn out and vote. And that that's right. a big question. And pollsters, they're guessing. Nobody could guess, like in Florida, yeah. that there was a huge disparity. Democratic voters did not turn out in Florida. Republicans won right. big. There's not a single pollster in the country that got that because nobody would imagine right. that kind of swing. So it was it was a loser. Uh, it was it was a phantom shift. And somebody who knows polling, like Nate Cohn, should be able to look at that and go like, "Let's caveat this." Well, but let me tell you what he did because he's actually kind of a hero of this cycle, in my view. Is that he, um, there was a shift and, and it was part of what changed the narrative. It wasn't the only thing, right? Cause there was a, I forget what the other poll was that showed another four points while most of the polls were showing no movement at all. And by the way, it's important what you said about your polling of civics, which is that basically in May and June, the election settled and there was one election from there on, right? Which was yeah. heightened democratic intensity, Republicans struggling to generate intensity. The election did not jump around. There weren't big movements in, in the election. This is a really important thing. But then Nate Cohen released a series of House polls, which actually showed Democrats, for example, in New Mexico, flipping a seat in New Mexico. And the House polls that he released a week later showed a close competitive election. And then he released a series of Senate polls, which showed basically we're among the most accurate polls of the cycle based on what we know now showing Democrats keeping the Senate. So what happened was when he, I think he started thinking like maybe that poll I did wasn't so accurate or maybe it's that the battleground, right? 
is much more democratic because of democratic campaigns and the money advantage they have than outside the battleground, meaning that the generic is not really so relevant anymore like the Biden approval rating, right? What you have to look at is the state-based polls. So Nate Cohen, to his credit, was the first national media figure to, ba- to call out the Republican effort to gain the polls. And, and he did that, you know, two weeks before the election. He said, there's something going on here. There's an unusual amount of Republican polling. And if you're only looking at that, you're going to sort of see a different election than those of us who are looking at independent polls. So I think Nate understood that that may, you know, may have been a little bit of an outlier, but it would not have been sufficient to have changed people's understanding if, if there wasn't this effort by the Republicans to game the state-based polling averages. And let me let me give you an example of, what, of how crazy this was, right? I showed you, I talked about Georgia. In Washington state, every poll taken up to like October 18th, it, from September, the end of September to October 18th, we were up between eight and 12 points. And then the Republicans dropped six polls showing the race between zero and three. The average dropped like down to seven. Yeah. And then Real Clear Politics, which was part of this whole campaign declared it a toss-up race and we won by 13. Real Clear yeah. Politics also declared Colorado a toss-up race and we won I think by <clears throat> I think we won yeah. by a similar amount, right? Like and 15, so I think, yeah. yeah, so it was not just that the polling averages moved but that Real Clear Politics which used to be a legitimate source of information about elections which is no longer a legitimate source uh, independent source for elections participated in the effort to gain the polling averages. And for people like, um, you know, who are older, who grew up using RCP and could use it as an alternative to 538, I think they had a hard time letting go of how, of the fact that, you know, as Ron Brownstein wrote a few days before the election, real, real clear politics is now part of the right wing noise machine. And, and so that became part of the other reason people got, uh, bamboozled. But Marcos, let me say one other thing about this idea that there were two elections. This is really important. I th- this was not a national election. Uh, there wasn't one election across the country. There wasn't a wave. There wasn't a thing. There were essentially at least two elections, maybe even two and a half in some ways. But the first election was in the battleground where we had these good campaigns, where we had national TV come in, where we had uh, more money than they did and better field operations. Those in the battleground, things got bluer. In outside the battleground, where we didn't have those kind of intense, things got a little bit more red, like in California and in New York and, and in Texas and in Florida. And I think for me, that does. there's two things about that. One is it means that all these national numbers that people are using to sort of talk about what happened, it's, it's, very, it's completely irrelevant. I mean, if you're not starting with this notion that there were two distinct elections, then you're sort of misleading people about what happened in the election. The second thing that's important uh, about that is that we have to be worried about what happened in New York and California because it meant that the right-wing noise machine, that if we're not countering the right-wing noise machine, we can see losses in places that we didn't expect. And so there's got to be – we have to do both, which is we have to do the state-based campaigns that we did really well – and as a national party, we have to get louder. We have to contest the right-wing noise machine. We have to accelerate the kind of work that you've been doing your whole political career since you jumped into this thing 20 years ago, 19 years ago, where you, you, know, you, 20. Created, 20, yeah, you created this site that has helped us be louder. We need to get to help each other become much louder, particularly if we're going to lose Twitter, right? And the urgency around 
creating a louder family and being more intentional about winning the daily information war. Uh, it's hard to believe that we're even talking about this, but but it's something that I think we have to commit ourselves much more to because we see what happens if we don't contest them. And 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 I think and I am going to write up about what I did with my. I sat with my dog every morning and I had my coffee and my white bulldog and I cranked out my thread every morning. And, you know, and I was able to, you know, really frankly change the election narrative sitting in my house, you know, in my pajamas, you know, uh, in the morning drinking my coffee. If I can do that, imagine if 10,000 of us do that every day or a hundred thousand of us do that every day, we can make a huge impact. And I think that part of what Marcus, I want to work with you on is that we've got to work on creating this idea of information warriors and, and take amplification and, and information war. I, I don't like the term information war because it sounds like Bannon, right? But it's the war room. It's the whole reason yeah. I worked in the war room 30 years ago. We didn't just do rapid response. We also wanted to win the information war every day. And we've got to get better at that and be far more aggressive and not let them have so much, uh, you know, we start too behind and it gets hard to catch up in the, in the national daily discourse. Yeah, and it's really frustrating when you see somebody like Nate Silver, when, when he was being pushed on the idea of these trash Republican polls, and his response was, well, Democrats could counter with their own trash. He didn't say trash. Oh they, could, they could counter with their own polls. And it's like, yeah. we that's called the reality polls. <laughs> the Democrats yeah, no. are going to create trash polls to cancel out the Republican trash polls yeah. to make your job easier in having to sift through. Because, I mean, his model is garbage in, garbage out. And yeah, he just still. wants clicks. He just wants clicks. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He wants clicks. And if there was any doubt about that, that's been erased over the last few months, right? That his goal is he put two of the pollsters that he put on his averages were high school kids. He had two <laughs> different groups of high school kids. There's two two kids from some school in Pennsylvania who are doing 800-person sample likely voter polls, where the hell did they get the money to do something like that? I mean, do we think they were actually hiring phone banks to go had, to, like, it was yeah, crazy, you know? They had, and what they they, had yeah. Johnson winning by eight points in Wisconsin, right. I believe. Right, yeah, no, the that two was, That was in Nate Silver's, that was in his database, was, yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so let's quickly talk about Joe Biden, because um, he really... Yeah. There was this bifurcation and nobody believed it when I wanted to talk about it, but because everybody was sort of fixated with Biden's approval numbers. He started the cycle in the, in the mid to high 30s. He ended the cycle in the low 40s. Yeah. Um, and so that people could not escape from the idea that people were going to vote on Joe Biden when it was very, very clear to me and so, you know, you and others that that wasn't happening. And so there's couple of theories. One, I, you know, obviously Donald Trump being on stage sort of maybe canceled that out in a lot of ways. But I also think that Joe Biden, and I think there's some research to back this up. He's, people may not like him. Nobody hates him. Right. No, you know, he's a, kind of boring old white guy, right? I mean, he's not black. He's not a woman. They're, they're, no. None of the hooks that Republicans have. And even Trump's attacks on him, Sleepy Joe, that doesn't inspire hatred. Oh, he's just sleepy. Eh. Sleepy. Yeah, I don't well, like and, and what happened is, let's be very clear about this is really important what you're talking about, right? Is that their central indictment of him was that he was kind of old and out of it and the country was kind of in chaos. Afghanistan was chaos, the border was chaos, crime chaos, it was all chaos because he was old and couldn't do his job. But when he legislated, like that wave of legislation, you know, through the summer and fall, including bipartisan legislation, right? 
And it's um, and then you know when he showed that he can manage this complexity of Ukraine, it became that attack, that central attack on him is that he was kind of old and out of it, became diffused completely, right? And so if the central attack on him, to your point, was Sleepy Joe, then Sleepy Joe wasn't Sleepy Joe anymore either. It was the the guy that we elected to be president, which is old, old, but experienced and capable, right? Which is what he showed in the latter half of the year. I mean, I, I was over the white house recently and I ran into one of the senior folks there and we were talking about the election. And this is a policy person who helped the, one of the economic policy folks. And I said, the reason we had a good midterm election is because of the work that you guys did. I mean, the country is better today. We've passed this incredibly important climate legislation and chips and infrastructure and that you know, it is just a fact that we're better off. It's a fact that we've now made investments that are going to make it much more likely, Marcos, that our kids are going to be living living in a prosperous America over the next 25 years. It's, it's a fact that it's more likely that we're going to turn the corner on climate change now because of Democrats and Joe Biden. These are all just fact. And what did they have? Right. They had Herschel Walker and, you know, Oz and they had, they had, yeah, no, and they had they had nothing. Right. They didn't make an effort to create an alternative narrative. They didn't have an agenda, you know, which was also a huge strategic error by them. There was no olive branch, you know, to the people that had voted against them. And so, you know, they made a series of incredible mistakes in this election, including the fact that they realized that they don't really actually have. GOTV and field operations, and maybe that might be helpful to a campaign to yeah. have mechanisms of turning your voters out. I mean, there's now it's amazing to watch them. Yeah, no, I mean their their rejection of the early vote. I mean, I was writing every day like, um, does everybody realize that the goal of an election is to get your voters to vote? And like, <laughs> a lot more of our voters are voting than theirs are, and that's good. And like, shouldn't you be worried, right? And so it was just it was just an amazing. I mean, they really. Look, they're a party that's been overrun by extremism and extremists, and extremists, you know, can't run a two-car funeral sometimes, right? And and so it was it was a really poor performance by the Republicans on so many levels. But again, I go back to this one central thing, which is that Joe Biden has been a good president. The country is better off. We are waging a very. I know that you're very focused on what's happening in Ukraine. Personally, we're waging a you know a very successful, difficult effort to keep the coalition together to battle Putin. I mean, a lot is going right here for the world and for the United States. And I'm proud of my president. I'm proud of my party. I'm proud of all of you. I mean, I, I the last thing I'll say is that in this rant here, and I'm tired. I'm, I've been sick. Is that um. This was the heroes of this election were the American people, right? I mean, they looked at these crazy, you know, MAGA secretaries of state and all these lunatics across the country who were just un, unfit. And they just said, no way, I'm not going to do it. Right. And, you know, I'm, the heroes were the people that wrote the postcards and knocked on doors and gave the money and gave the resources to our candidates I'm really proud of the family. I think this was a family win. This wasn't just a win for Joe Biden and the Washington Democrats. This was a, a team effort in a way that is really important because that's also what should worry the Republicans about next time. Our grassroots are strong. We are, we are in good shape. We're starting to see a, leg, a generational turn in our party. The new leaders that we just elected, the new leaders who are rising, 
Gretchen Whitner, Hakeem Jeffries, you know, Josh Shapiro, go down your list of people. The party is strong right now. We, and I'm really, I'm really proud. I think it's stronger Marcos than in any time we've known each other. And I mean, yeah. you mentioned Jeffries. I mean, even the transfer of power was incredible. I mean, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. Oh man, listen, I'm here every day. I know Nancy Pelosi really well. I know Steny. These are people that I've worked with closely. Nobody had any idea that was coming. And, and, you know, and we hoped that it was going to be peaceful. No one knew of Steny and Clyburn. We're going to get down, you know, step down. How graceful and, 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 and mature and artful was that? And, and small D Democrat too, right? You know, yielding power, giving up power voluntarily, you know, as a sign to Republicans. Nancy, what a f- amazing final masterstroke by an inspiring politician from your neck of the woods, Marcos, right? Yeah, it's and, incredible. And, yeah. and I, 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 you know, I love Nancy Pelosi. I love Clyburn. Eh, Steny, I could do without, but Pelosi <laughs> and, and Clyburn. And I was trying to find, like, I need to come up with a very graceful way to say that maybe it's time for a new generation of leaders. Didn't even need to say it. They were on it. And they, they knew, oh. they knew, they read the room. And they saw what the future of the party looked like, and they, they facilitated that. And Marcos, one of the things you should think about doing over the next year is maybe one out of every three episodes, you bring on one of these emerging leaders from around the country, showcase to your viewers and listeners how, why we're so excited about what's coming next. I mean, I, I'm really very, very optimistic about our chances in 2024, about our medium and long term. And, and, and the other thing is that I wouldn't, you know, they've got two big millstones around their neck. MAGA is a millstone. They can't win primaries without it, but they can't win general elections with it. And it's a real problem. And Ron DeSantis is just as MAGA as, as, uh, as Trump. And, you know, despite this idea that he can sort of reposition himself as a moderate Republican, I mean, my God, the guy is an extremist. Uh, He chose, he went too far. He made big political errors in his positioning in the last couple of years. But the second big millstone around their neck is a, is abortion and the extremism of the Supreme Court. And I think these are things that could do enormous structural long-term damage to the Republican Party for younger voters in this country in ways that could make it very difficult. You know, we've won more votes in seven out of the last eight national presidential elections. Yeah, yeah. No, no American party has done that in American history. And now they've done two things that may make it even harder for them to win national elections. And, and I think that, you know, I think that one of the big lessons, one of the most interesting things I'm interested in watching is what happens with the Supreme court in the next two years. Do they really continue down this path of damn the torpedoes? We're going to, you know, we're going to burn things up. We're going to throw red meat, you know, to the base right before an election again, handing the next presidential election to the Democrats the way they did. Or do they moderate? Do they pull back? Does John Roberts have more influence again? And do they realize that, you know, following Alito is a path for ruin for them? This is really big consequence. It's a very consequential, I think, for what's going to happen in the internal dynamic of the court. And that's why this victory for us or this very strong election was could be you know 
have legs for generations, not just, you know, for the next two years. Yeah, absolutely. And even the 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 youth vote turning out on an off-year election and how many people yeah. are brand new first-time voters and yeah, voter incredible. registration number. That was on an off-year election when the media was saying that we we're about to get blown out. There's none of that illusion since 2024. And, and to, to your last point, our positioning for 2024, we won almost every key election in every single real battleground state, right. the governorships, the, you know, except for Nevada, but the secretary of state's offices, the attorney general's uh, attorneys general offices. This was uh, state legislatures in Pennsylvania, major gains in Arizona, in, uh, in Michigan. I mean, <laughs> it was unbelievable. I mean, when we kept seeing these numbers come in and like, you, you're right, we didn't do as well in some of the states that weren't really part of the focus, but in the states that matter for 2024, yeah. It, we we did incredibly well on a year we weren't supposed to do well. So if I'm the Republicans, I'm absolutely sweating it. Yes, listen, we did. We are stronger in Arizona today than we were before. We're stronger in Colorado. We're stronger in Michigan. We're stronger in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, that's a big deal, right? You know, there's only eight or nine states that are going to determine four of those. We are stronger than we were in 2020, right? Nevada is going to be this you know, dead battleground. It's been there for, you know, 18, 20 years, two, three points, one way or the other. Wisconsin is going to be a slog. They're going to have their convention there. I think we've got to turn North Carolina on. I think we've got to make it Georgia. You know, if Warnock wins by three or four points, uh, you know, we did better on election day than we did in 2020. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've strengthened our position and in many, many of the most important States in the country, hats off to the, DNC, the DSEC, and everybody who made that happen. And the other thing, I just read this today, Marcos, we flipped five legislative chambers this cycle. They flipped none, and which is just an, a jaw-dropping, a jaw-dropping mm-hmm. thing about just the nature of what happened in this election. So I worry, the one thing I will say, the thing that I think we, you know, my, my admonition, there are two things that I... And we didn't get a chance, we're going to run out of time uh, soon, but to talk about the Hispanic vote, which also was an overly hyped Republican. We'll, 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 we'll bring yeah. you back to talk about that. Yeah, because that's yeah. definitely a conversation we need to have. But let's also commit, I want to commit to one thing together. We need a national 24-7, 365 youth voter registration campaign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> led by the DNC and the family. It has to start in January, February. Mm-hmm. And, and it has to be, have media and people on the ground we got to pump the under 45 vote and that's when we can start flipping chambers, other chambers and really putting a, a stake into the heart of MAGA, which is what we have to really be thinking about in this next election. So Simon, one last question. The yeah. aftermath, after you, you, you were sitting on that limb that turned out to not be the limb, you were literally on a tree trunk. Everybody yeah. else was sitting out on limbs. Uh, did people apologize to you? Did, did anybody come to you and say, we should have listened more? I got, I mean, I got some very graceful notes. I mean, Chris Saliza among them, who was, I Whoa. think, among Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he not only said uh, in his first article after the election that I was right and he and everybody else was wrong. Uh, he also reached out to me on Twitter. I, I, I heard from a lot of people. Um, I haven't heard from Nate Silver. And, <laughs> and we're going to ask, Tom Bonnier and I are going to ask to go on his podcast and we'll see what happens. Um, but I think, I think that the... I can tell you that I've, yes, a lot of people have reached out and I'm doing tons of interviews and continue 
because people want to know, I mean, the responsible people want to know why they got it wrong. They want to understand what we saw and what they didn't see. And frankly, what we saw was very simple, right? Was that in all these measures of intensity, Democrats were checking the boxes on, on the House specials, on voter registration, on fundraising, on the early vote, right? We saw the same indicators. They were telling us the same thing. Republicans had none of those indicators of intensity. And we also didn't get bamboozled by this false red wave stuff. And yeah, yeah there may have been a little bit of hopium in there, but the hope, the people who were smoking hopium in this election were the peddlers of the red wave, right? And because the red wave was an implicit, let's just, I want to just end with this because I think this is actually so important to understand. The red wave, to believe in the red wave, you had to believe that abortion didn't matter. And that was just bananas, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just bananas. And it was hopium. It was wishful thinking. It was the right wing not really being able to comprehend that they had you know, basically screwed their party by this long-held desire. And it's really and, – and there's patriarchy in there. There's all sorts of like ugliness in here with what happened. But, you know, thank God uh, that – you know, we had the kind of election results we had. I do think if you haven't done a whole episode on what happened in Michigan, I'd recommend that because oh. it's really one of the most important stories yep. of the election, you know, the enormity of the election there. Gretchen Whitmer comes out a hero. She stared down the effort to put the old abortion law in place. She fought it in court, right? We're, we're, we're hopeful we can get her on the show, so yeah, we're, no, we're working should, on it. You should. I mean, she's a hero of the party. She's a new hero of the Democratic Party. I'm so impressed with her and because she, she's not just articulate and charismatic. I mean, she's a fighter, man. She's a, I've worked in Michigan. Michigan people are tough, you know, and she's tough as nails. And so I, I'm really – listen, I just want to say that we've known each other a long time, and I'm, I was a, pr- a proud – you know, one of the first supporters of yours outside of – of, of the Bay Area. I mean, I was probably your first Washington friend, yep. Uh, yep. right? And I Absolutely. helped bring you to yep. Washington. Yep. And I'm so proud of you, Marcos, frankly, for what you've done and the empire you've built and the fact that you continue to make an incredibly contribution, incredible contribution to democracy. But our party is strong. We have done a good job. We've had three straight elections. All of this self-doubt that we have, the glass half empty as opposed to being half full, it has to end now. We have, we have to go on offense. We have to be confident and loud and proud about our party. We've done a good job for the third consecutive presidency. They have been ruinous in three consecutive presidencies. We cannot allow the kind of negative sentiment that they're pouring into our politics every day to continue to affect our understanding of our country, our leaders, our president, our party, ourselves, each other. We have to reject this negative sentiment and, and, and once again, live, I think, in the thing that you, when we first met, right, is about the, the patriotism that we all have, the love of country that we all have. This has to become our guiding force. We're going to defeat the authoritarians around the world and here at home through positive sentiment and optimism. And we've got to do a better job inside our family about being more upbeat and optimistic. If we can do that, I think the next few years are going to be wonderful ones for us in the country. Yeah, Simon, yeah, democracy is on the uprise. We're seeing it in Iran. We're seeing it in China. There's there's things are happening, and we're seeing it here at home. And I just want to make one last point yes. before I sign off. We were talking about a democratic close election. Like We, we weren't saying we were going to win. We weren't right. saying that the wave election narrative was wrong. 
What we were saying is, where is the evidence for right. it? We do not see the evidence. If we follow the evidence, it's going to be a close election. This was always very reality-based. It wasn't based on any kind of hopeful yeah. outcome, because otherwise we'd be cheering you know, major Democratic victories. But we weren't doing that. We were just saying, yeah. if they are right, why aren't we seeing that in the special elections? Why aren't we seeing that right. in the independent polling? Why aren't we seeing that in the voter registration numbers? Why aren't we seeing that in the early vote? We had a lot of data to work with. So there was a foundation and a basis. And I think that's what I really love about uh, what Daily Coast has done and what you do, Simon, is that we're very rooted in that data. It's very, very important. And it sort of frees us from that emotional reaction or hope or despair, all those things that, that can happen when you sort of fall into a dominant narrative that, that, that you don't quite understand or you don't really, that doesn't anchor you in something real. Well, and Marcos, let me do my final point on that is that every election is unique. And every time you hear a commentator in national TV or in, on podcasts say, well, this election's like that election, you should just immediately discount what they're saying because <laughs> there's no election like any other election. Every election is unique. And the way that you do analysis is you have to stay to the close to the data about this election, not trying to find patterns from other elections in this one, because yeah. it's a, it's a fool it's fool's gold. It's it's not worth the time. And what happened was, I think you and I and others stayed close to the data about this election, and this election was always the data we had was always saying close competitive election. I mean, what's really interesting is that when I went back and looked, I never made a projection on the house because I just didn't know. I think when it's that close. You have no way of knowing. But when I went to bed on Monday night, I thought it would be 51 in the Senate and 215 in the House. That's what I believed based on everything I was looking at. We'll end up being at 213 in the House, right, mm -hmm. I think is the final number. And, and we're going to be at 51 in the Senate. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm a genius, but there was data available to the public that would lead one to be to sort of see it in that range. It's a range, right? It's, and I think the other thing that would be helpful to, I think Marcos, you can continue to do because you actually understand data and understand how to interpret it is there's sometimes a, a level of precision that people think that we can get to that we can't, right? I mean, when you have margin of error, three to four points, you know, you're talking about a range, right? 50 seats to 52 seats. You're talking 210 to 220. I mean, I would get asked all the time about, well, where do you think the house is? And I'm like, it's really close. And well, can you do yeah. No, I don't know. I don't Point think flip. that anybody. I kept no, saying, yeah, yeah. No, but, coin. <laughs> but there was no way of knowing. I mean, when you've got 30 races within a couple points, mm -hmm. and those are all three or four margin of error, there's actually no way to know the answer. There isn't an actual answer, right? The data doesn't get you to that level of precision. It just tells you that it's close. And, and that's where I think a lot of, I mean, I was stunned to see CBS and Fox make projections on the house at 223, 224. I was like, in what universe could they come up with a single number as yeah. opposed to a range? And I, I do think that the other thing I'm just going to reflect upon. I'm talking a lot today and I'm tired. Is that, <laughs> is that, um, and we've been going on a long time, Marcus. I didn't know. How <laughs> we, we went way over, but that's we the beauty of podcasting. Somebody telling us we yeah. got to get off the air. I think there are, I think what I learned in the last two years is there are a lot of English majors uh, doing data analysis in our politics. And they're, you know, they're, the, the lack of numeracy or basic math literacy 
was very, very apparent uh, in this last cycle. Um, and I was a little surprised um, by that, even by some pollsters. I mean, one of the my most m- memorable polls was a poll in Nevada that became a, a very uh, a poll that the Republicans were selling, which was an AARP poll, which had Cortez Masto up four, but her only up 11 with Hispanics. And she won Hispanics by 30 points last time. Yeah. If she was up 11, she'd be losing by 10 points. <laughs> right. And so, like, how did they publish that poll? Like, I mean, how did they, how did responsible pollsters look at these numbers and say, okay, this is something we can publish? Because the poll was obviously bad, and they screwed it up, and they published it anyway. And that poll dominated the discourse in that race for like six to eight weeks. And I I did, because there were no other polls for a while, and I did and, and all to these- be clear, if Democrats yeah. weren't winning by 30 points amongst Latinos, they were not going to win that race. Right, and so I would White talk White people to- do not vote Democratic. So, right. I, was, yeah. I was talking to national reporters, very smart national reporters, saying, do you understand there is zero chance that this data is correct, right? It's a bad poll. Like, there is no, we, the basic math doesn't work, right? It's like two plus two is six. Like, you got to reject it. And not a single person would accept that as a reality. And it got used in virtually every article about that race for like six weeks. And it's like, come on, we, we have to do better. And, I, and I, one of the things that I think that you should think about, and somebody's got to go build a Democratic polling average. It may not be Daily Coast, or it may not be, you know, maybe a consortium of groups, but we can't rely on 538 anymore. We just can't. And we certainly, and real clear politics, I mean, Nate, Nate I think, has lost his way. And if Nate wants to explain to us why he's not going to let two 16-year-olds, you know, produce garbage polls to get on his average, I think we can come back. But Nate's got to explain how he's going to tidy up his shop, create a higher floor to get into the averages, right? Don't do this thing where he has this magic secret sauce where he weights stuff, which is the most opaque thing in the entire business, right? And, and it's like he's got to create a higher floor. And what I want to see, here's what I want to see. I want the, the threshold to get into 538's averages for people to prove that the poll actually happened. Yeah. I mean, and some of you may think, wonder what yeah. that's about. Sometimes we literally wonder if, the, if there was an actual poll and if it's just made up numbers. Trafalga, sure. Trafalga's poll in, in Vermont, where they were off by 34 points, is not statistically possible for that to have happened. You can't be off by 34 points in a poll. You can't. It's not, it's not, there is no way to design a questionnaire that can be that wrong, right? It's just not possible, right? There's a three or four point margin of error. So they didn't poll there. That's not a poll, right? And so it's actually, you can be off by eight or nine. You know, you made some mistakes. You can't be off by 34, right? Now you're outside the realm of basic math and statistics, right? So they, we know they dumped polls that were not real, that they just made up the numbers, you know, to game the polling averages, to get more business, right. To do whatever the hell they thought they were doing. And, but it's just, anyway, it's been a fun cycle. Marcus. Yeah. It yeah. has been an incredible cycle. So I'm so appreciative of everything that, yeah. that you did and your relentlessness pushing back against yeah. that narrative, not just publicly, but also privately with all those journalists and reporters. And, and hopefully if it did not have enough impact this cycle, next cycle, hopefully people have learned better and we'll take you more seriously when you call them and say. <laughs> well, can I say something? Can I, can I give you an example? Look at the White House Twitter feed these days. I am very, very happy about how aggressive 
I, I think that part of what I did is I hope that not only did I help inspire Democrats in doing analysis differently, you know, we did it together, right? But, you know, I hope I showed people a little bit how to fight harder. And, and, and that's Absolutely. me actually more important than the second one. And what you've seen, for example, the White House's Twitter feed in the last couple of months, they're repeating more, there's repetition, right? They're using it in a much more sophisticated way. More humor. Th- yeah. yeah that yeah. edge. And I think, yes. I think we're learning, I think we're learning how to be better in, in, in using the tools that we have to, you know, control the information environment to get our point across. Um, and this is, you know, we've got a lot of learning to do here. We've been pushed around by them in the last couple of years. We can't ever allow that to happen again. And, you know, we set up the war room in 1992 to remake the way that you run a campaign, to centralize it around the daily information war. You know, we need, um, you know, as I wrote about in a piece, and, and I'll end with this, is that, you know, as part of the original war room, um, you know, which was 20, 25 people. This is Clinton. I think Clinton, a million dinosaur times, right? Dinosaur pre-internet age is that um, we need to think of the war room as four, not 20 kids in a headquarters fighting it out, you know, with national reporters, but it's 4 million Americans, Democrats going to work every day, trying to control the information space who are wired together, who amplify, amplify each other that are out there fighting, you know, to, to make sure that, we don't get pushed around by a noisier and louder and more strategic comms from the other side. And I think that's something we have to build together over the next two years. If we can do that, I think it's much more likely that we win in 2024 and bury MAGA in the way that it needs to be buried. Simon Rosenberg is the president of NDN, Democratic Think Tank. He is Simon at Simon WDC yep. on Twitter, where he single-handedly held back the, <laughs> the red wave narrative. Uh, and so, so appreciative of everything you've done. Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Marcos. Thanks for all of your 20 years of amazing work. Thank you. Have a wonderful holidays. That's today's show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Thank you to Simon Rosenberg for joining us today. Thanks to Walter for producing the show. Thanks to Kara, Paul, and Dorothy for everything they do behind the scenes. Thanks to you for listening, for fighting, for doing everything you did to win this election, to win next week's election in Georgia, and looking ahead to 2024. The fight doesn't stop, but let's have a good holidays in there. Why don't we? Thank you so very much. Catch you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast.com. 